Good afternoon. Thank you all for coming to the Cato Institute for today's book forum. We also want to thank the uh, audience at C-SPAN for watching as well. All of us in Washington, D.C. know that big government is a fact of life. There's a general consensus the bigger it gets, the more economic growth it hinders. Politicians at least acknowledge this in their rhetoric, even if they don't do anything about it. President Bush's recent State of the Union speech is a perfect example. About halfway through the speech, you might have heard him acknowledge that getting government spending under control was a vital component of his economic agenda. Then he launched into a laundry list of new budget proposals up to and including a proposal to pour taxpayer money into development of a car that runs on fuel derived from wood chips. This is what passes for policy anymore in Washington, D.C. We know big government affects people inside the beltway and outside the beltway. We, lock, we tend to look at macroeconomic conditions, but what about the microeconomic conditions? How does it affect businessmen, shoppers, homeowners, small business owners, and families? That's the subject of the book we're celebrating today. The title of the book is Size Matters, How Big Government Puts the Squeeze on America's Families, Finances, and Freedom, and Limits the Pursuit of Happiness, by today's guest, Mr. Joel Miller. Commenting on the book will be Jonathan Rouse. I'll go ahead and introduce both of them. Uh, just as a quick program note, we will have time for questions after uh, both of them speak. And you'll also have the opportunity, in case you hadn't noticed before, to buy the book outside for $18. That's a discount, and so uh, take advantage of it while you can. Mr. Joel Miller is currently the senior editor at Nelson Current, a division of Thomas Nelson, where he's overseen such books as the New York Times bestsellers by Michael Savage and Fox News' Andrew Napolitano. He's also the author of Bad Trip, How the War Against Drugs is Destroying America, which Publishers Weekly hailed as well-researched and bitingly written. Joel's articles and commentaries have been published in online editions of The American Spectator, Reason Magazine, The Sacramento Union, and Tech Central Station, and he lives in Nashville, outside the Beltway, with his wife and his two children. Jonathan Rausch, our commenter for today, is a senior writer and columnist for National Journal Magazine in Washington, D.C., and a columnist for the Atlantic Monthly. He's the author of several books and many articles on public policy. He's also a guest scholar at the Brookings Institution, and in 2005 he received the National Magazine Award for columns and commentary. He's the author of an excellent book titled Government's End, Why Washington Stopped Working. In fact, in some ways, these are counterparts to one another, Size Matters and Government's End. Size Matters talks about how government influences people's and hurts people's lives, and Jonathan talks about, in his book, how it got this bad. He also is the author of The Kindly Inquisitors, The New Attacks on Free Thought, published by the University of Chicago Press. And, as I said, we'll be uh, having Joel speak first. Questions will be afterwards, so please join me in welcoming Joel Miller. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me here. In 1938, H.L. Mencken, the gadfly journalist, the sage of Baltimore, published in the Baltimore Evening Sun, across six columns of the paper, one million very dinky little dots. Those dinky little dots represented what in his mind was at that time a growing problem, and that was the size of the federal workforce. Every dot on, that, on those pages was representative of an employee of the federal government. There was one million federal civil servants in 1938. <coughs> 
Paul Light of the Brookings Institution uh, brings this up to date in 2002, it's actually closer to 17 million today, substantially larger. Back in Mencken's day, again, the federal budget was only about $8 billion. In today's dollars, that's about $107 billion. But of course, today's dollars would never be enough to cover the $2.6 trillion that the federal budget actually is today. But besides spending so much money, what are these bureaucrats, politicians, and others actually doing all day long? For starters, they're regulating everything from school curricula to toilet flushes. They're grading everything from Christmas trees to the size of holes in Swiss cheese. Very detailed grading of that. They are subsidizing everything from pigs to Big Bird. The Federal Register, which is a daily accounting of essentially all the uh, direct coming out of Washington, D.C. every day, is about 75,000 pages long at the end of the year. Give or take a few thousand pages, it hits that mark pretty regularly most of the time. By way of comparison, the first six Harry Potter novels are only about 3,300 pages long. The Encyclopedia Botanica is only about 33,000 pages long. To show you what kind of difference that is, A.J. Jacobs, an uh, editor for Esquire magazine, decided that he, for a interesting little book project, would read the entire Encyclopedia Britannica and let people know, uh, you know his experiences along the way. It took him an entire year to read the Encyclopedia Britannica. If you wanted to read the Federal Register in that same period of time, you'd have to read pretty much all day long, seven days a week, and even then you'd only get through if you had possibly a spell from the young magician himself. The Code of Federal Regulations, which uh, is the collection of the final uh, regulations that come out of Washington every year, uh, is currently growing at about 20,000 pages every year. As if that weren't bad enough, every year starts with about 4,000 new regulations already in the pipeline waiting to be fleshed out over the course of the next several months. To give you an example of just how much space we're talking about here, physical space, the Code of Federal Regulations takes about 20, pardon me, takes about 20 feet of shelf space. The great books of the Western world don't hog space like that because the Greeks were very concerned with hubris. Uh, it's a much shorter span of shelf space. The founders of the uh, American government were also very concerned with hubris, and that's why the federal constitution is only this big. And this actually includes the Declaration of Independence and a very helpful little preface by Roger Pylon, also of the Cato Institute. It's so short, you can actually read it in one lengthy trip to the John. While you're there, however, you might want to take a copy of the appendix to the fiscal year 2006 budget of the federal government. This is just the appendix. There are actually, I understand, five more volumes of similar size. This is bigger than a phone book, not nearly as useful, and uh, would be very difficult for any human being to get through in any sort of way that made sense out of it, other than very narrow interests. A friend of mine, uh, Tom White, is a cartoonist. Uh, he envisioned uh, a way of solving the energy crisis uh, a couple years back. Uh, this gets, ties into something that Bush was helpful in pointing out during his State of the Union, and that is that we are unfortunately addicted to oil in this country 
White had a very good solution. He suggested that we take a large turbine and attach it by belts to the head and feet of the American founders so while they're spinning in their graves, they can create enough juice to power several cities. So the federal government is incredibly large, takes up an awful lot of money, um, but what's it really mean? What does any of that really mean? You know, talking about thousands of pages of regulations or uh, trillions, of trillions of dollars is almost unfathomable to even imagine. <clears throat> what does it actually mean? If you boil it down, it means something uh, incredibly important to each and every one of us in this room. It means something important to us because it impacts our pursuit of happiness. Of Jefferson's tri uh, triad in the um, Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, certainly the last is the easiest to overlook. Life sounds so much more important. Liberty sounds so much more substantial. But what do you do with your life and what do you do with your liberty? Most of us are busy pursuing happiness day in and day out. That's why we get married. That's why we have jobs. That's why we do anything we do. Even religious devotion is tied up in things like the pursuit of happiness. So the problem is, though, <clears throat> when you talk about happiness, most people think of it as a very insubstantial thing. Uh, and it's strange that people's attitude is that way because the founders spent an incredible amount of time talking about happiness. If you read, for instance, the, some of the debates during the Constitutional Convention, you read the uh, articles, the essays, the letters written by the founders, they spent a good deal of time talking about happiness. Uh, one pamphlet from the Constitutional Debate says that the happiness of the people at large must be the great object with, with every honest statesman, and he will direct every movement to this point. John Adams, who was a fairly crotchety individual in real life, thought a lot about happiness. He said the happiness of a society is the end or the goal of government. And Jefferson strikes the same chord in his first inaugural. He says, after listing several benefits that accrue to us in, a, in this free society that they had just created, he said, what more is necessary to make us happy and prosperous? Still one more thing a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, which shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread that it has earned. This is the sum of good government, and this is necessary to close the circle of our felicities. To close the circle of our felicities means to make our happiness complete. It was a guiding light principle of the founders. But of course, they didn't mean that the government's job was to make you happy or that you had a right to happiness itself. The founders' view of happiness was essentially two-pronged, that the, every individual had the right to pursue it and that the government's duty, the government's job, its overarching uh, reason for existence was to secure that right for every individual, just like it secures your right to life and just like it secures your right to liberty. However, <coughs> government is one of the original party poopers. Uh, James Madison, if not the original, certainly one of the, the better practitioners of it. James Madison said that good government implies two things. First, fidelity to the object of government, which is the happiness of the people. And secondly, a knowledge of the means by which that object can be best attained. Some governments are deficient in both of these qualities. Most are deficient in the first. And increasingly, our government is becoming deficient in both. Um, the reason that this happens is for three essential subversions of the right of pursuit of happiness, which 
my book deals with. The first is that uh, your right to pursue happiness is limited or subverted by the federal government's enabling, state governments also, uh, enabling some to pursue happiness at the expense of others. The second way that it happens is the obstacles that government places on our paths to pursue happiness. And the final subversion of the right of pursuit of happiness or limit to that pursuit is what happens when people decide that they are going to be the arbiter of happiness for everyone else in a society. I'll quickly move through these uh, so we don't take up too much time, but this is not quite a secret. Um, everyone sort of knows this, but you know, if you're publishing a book, you need to have publicity. Publicity is a heck of a lot easier to get if there's something going on in the news at any given moment that ties into the theme of your book. Well, it's a heck of a lot easier to get news if something terrible is happening. As the old uh, journalism adage goes, if it bleeds, it leads. And thanks to Jack Abramoff, there's an awful lot of bleeding going on in this town right now about lobbying. And it just so happens that there's a significant section of the book that deals with lobbying, because lobbying is one of the first ways that people pursue happiness at the expense of their neighbors. Um, back in 1914, Franz Oppenheimer wrote a book about the state called The State. And in that book, he lays out this basic dichotomy. He says you can get what you want through two basic means. You can get it the economic means, which is uh, buying or trading things that will uh, benefit you, or you can get it through the political means, which is just taking it from someone. Lobbyists help facilitate this. Lobbyists help facilitate the political means by providing the ability for the average individual or more importantly sometimes business interests and other things like that to lobby congressmen to get special uh, benefits from government. When the founders talk in the Constitution about the general welfare, they mean the welfare that applies to everyone in the society. Generally, it applies to everyone. What these people are asking for, of course, is specific welfare, uh, whether that's a loophole, whether that's a tax break, on and on and on. Any sort of uh, business you can imagine the government is about, uh, very often it's connected to providing some sort of specific benefit for another group or for a narrow interest. While the legal equivalent of Abramoff may not be going on all the time, certainly the moral equivalent of Abramoff is going on all the time. Uh, the New York Sun just reported last month that Senators uh, Clinton and Schumer were asking the Pentagon for about $123 million of wartime budget expenses for uh, two projects or some projects in their districts. Uh, the Department of Defense, of Defense did not ask for these projects. Uh, it served no need other than paying off campaign contributors. That's the moral equivalent of what Abramoff is doing. It may not be quite as nasty, but it goes on every day. Now, it's not just lobbyists, um, and we shouldn't be too quick to criticize lobbyists in one regard because they also help facilitate our ability to petition our government, which is good. And to use an admittedly disingenuous statement, some of my best friends are lobbyists, so we're not trying to hammer lobbyists when we make these sort of criticisms. But politicians like Schumer, like Clinton, uh, they also help facilitate this problem because the difference, really the only difference between Washington and Wall Street is geography. We always criticize big business, corporations, and so on for seeking their own interests. Politicians do the same thing. And in size matters, I look specifically at the Johnson administration and at the Nixon administration to show two ways in which they do this. One was 
Johnson's basic creation out of whole cloth of affirmative action quotas. Uh, it was justified later by the Supreme Court, but for several years it operated with no legislative uh, action at all. It was just something that his administration was able to push through by interpretation, mainly to push his own agenda. We saw that with Nixon with wage and price controls. But bureaucracies are also the same way. In uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, he talks about how hell is very similar to a bureaucracy. Who knows if that's actually true, but he makes this comment that essentially he likes bats better than bureaucrats. Uh, Ludwig von Mises, an Austrian economist, uh, he basically says the same thing. Uh, bureaucracy is an invective, just the word itself. He says, no one doubts that bureaucracy is always bad and should not exist in the perfect world. And that's, of course, true except for bureaucrats. Bureaucrats think that they should exist in the perfect world. And just like politicians, they're pursuing their own interests by expanding the budgets of their bureaus, enlarging the reach of their bureaus, and extending the job uh, description of what they do. And this is the reason why there are 75,000 pages coming out every year in the Federal Register. Now, the second way in which your right to pursue happiness is subverted by big government is in the obstacles that it places in your path. And this is the one that where most of us uh, see the impact day in and day out. I talk in the book, for instance, about uh, my first beer. It was a wonderful thing. Uh, Pete's Wicked Pale Ale, delightfully hoppy, wonderfully bitter, bubbly. It was fantastic. The problem was that big government almost interfered with my ability to ever have that beer because Pete Schlossberg, when he came up with Pete's Wicked Ale, the first beer that he created, he decided to go commercial. Instead of taking his hobby uh, as simply a hobby, he wanted to make money from it. So he went to the uh, California government to get his license to commercially brew and sell beer, and they denied him his license. They denied him his license not because the beer he made was unsafe or his ingredients were illegal or anything like that. They denied him the license because uh, his equipment was borrowed. Now, untold businesses in this country only function because they can borrow or lease equipment. And it makes perfectly good sense in most cases only to borrow or lease equipment. Why would you want to have tons of money invested in capital goods that you may not be able to get rid of if your business is only going to hang out for a few years? Well, he pushed back and eventually won, but other people don't. I also detail the case of a company called Terrameth that tried to also operate in California. What they did was they would take methanol, uh, pardon me, methane that would ferment in landfills and convert it to methanol. Uh, the problem is they never actually got to do that because when they went to get the various permits needed to do this, the, de the delay was significant. It ended up being four years. It ate up all of their capital. They were not able to function and they went out of business. And so a good that would have been beneficial to the state of California and to the lungs of people living there was denied them. The cost of regulation can be astounding. For a small firm, it can be as much as six to $7,000 per employee. The cost of a big firm, it's a little less. It's only $4,500 an employee, but that's still very significant. If you want to look at how it impacts even smaller businesses, Joanne Chang in Boston had a uh, very small um, cafe. She wanted to open up and have outdoor seating for her customers, just seating for, I think it's 10 people. She 
went and decided to get her permits, needed to do that. She tried to do that. It took six months to get her permits. She had to hire an attorney to help her navigate the labyrinthine uh, process. It included 15 different steps and approval from nine different city agencies. And it was all said and done. It cost her 10 grand. Uh, it's going to take her an awful lot of time to make up that 10 grand. And that's money that's now spent to please bureaucrats and to please the city, to please government, not to please customers. In California, Buck Knives was a going concern right after World War II. They moved out there in San Diego, began making products that made their name legendary throughout the country to sportsmen and, and others, outdoorsmen. The cost of doing business in, in California was so restrictive that in 2003, they moved to Idaho. And the entire cost of moving to Idaho was offset in just a few years, or will be offset in just a few years. Restrictive governments heap up costs on people, and it's not just businesses. It, it impacts families in important ways, too. Um, when <clears throat> you go to buy a home, you're not just buying the piece of dirt, and you're not just buying the sticks and the roof. You're buying the overhead that it takes to please the city that the builder is uh, working in. You're paying for the costs of the fees. You're paying for all of these other sorts of costs of big government. In some places, it's astounding. In King County, Washington, which is where Seattle is located, one builder decided to track every single cost going into the, into the price of a particular home. It was $22,000. Over $40,000 of that was government overhead, was fees and things like that. $40,000 is the difference in some cases between being able to buy a home now or having to wait two, three, five years as you save up the money you need to help offset that cost. Big government prevents people from getting homes. Big government prevents people from getting the things that they need and want right now, things like cars, things like health care. The costs of big government are layered into everything you buy. They're layered into everything you do. Um, I mentioned the, uh, <clears throat> the, uh, also the problem of income in the book. Highly regulated states see income grow slower than lower regulated states. I look particularly at Kansas uh, versus California and New York. And uh, income, median family income in places with less federal regulation, less state regulation, I should say, uh, median family incomes grow faster there. We don't think of Kansas as a place of, you know, dynamic uh, pop an economy, but it's really that's what it is, and it's that way because the federal, pardon me, the state government is not closely involved in what they're doing day in and day out. The final way that big government obstructs your uh, pursuit of happiness is by allowing the political system to overtake your ability to choose for yourself what you want to do. Um, when Alexis de Tocqueville was traveling through the United States and then wrote Democracy in America, he spends a little bit of time talking about what despotism might look like under a democratic government. And he says that it will be mild but extensive. And then he further says this, that it would not degrade men, or pardon me, it would degrade men without tormenting them because the happiness uh, of the people would be Pardon me. For their happiness, such a government willingly labors, but it chooses to be the sole arbiter of that happiness. The government arbitrates our happiness or decides what we will do to pursue happiness all the time. It does it through things like Social Security, which basically takes money out of your paycheck and prevents you from ever turning around and making those investments for yourself in a way that might benefit yourself better. 
in Britain right now, the healthcare system there is failing dramatically, and it's precisely because of the same system that Social Security basically is. There, they are trying to prevent or trying to create a system where there can be more consumerist input. It's still political, but it's going to be less problematic if they're able to pull it off. The problem is the opposition there wants to keep it public. It wants to keep it public because then it can use politics to dictate how you, how people living there, are going to be able to pursue happiness in terms of their own uh, acquiring of health care and things like that. What Jefferson was saying about big government is that it obstructs happiness. He says that by default, because what he really says is, of course, that government ought to be small. It ought to let people be free to pursue their own, uh, you know, attempts at industry and improvement. Otherwise, it ought to stay out of their way and allow them to keep the bread that they earn. Unfortunately, big government stands in the way of that every day, big ways, small ways, and it limits the ability for us to pursue happiness. If you go back to James Madison's listing of what makes good government, the fidelity, to the, the fidelity to the idea of uh, happiness as an object of uh, what the government ought to be doing and the ability to actually pull it off, we fail more and more, and big government simply does not measure up to that standard of good government. Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, everybody. It's uh, always a treat to be here at Cato, a place I've learned so much. And Stephen didn't mention in his introduction that one of the books that he mentioned, Kindly Inquisitors, was in fact co-published by Cato. Yet another reason to be grateful to be here. I know you're all wondering, so I'll get this out on the table right now. I have not received any money from Jack Abramoff, and I am returning all of it. <laughs> that is my official position. Um, a few words I thought, uh, well, as Henry VIII said to Anne Boleyn, I won't be keeping you long, but a few words I thought about the book, and then a few more words about the book in relation to the world, and then finally a few words about where we go from here, what to do about that. Um, the book is, uh, it's really kind of two books in one, in one handy form. On the one hand, it's a polemic against big government, and you heard Joel give the case admirably just now. On the other hand, it's also a primer to a large extent on some fundamental libertarian principles. For instance, if you're interested in a very good, quick capsule summary of public choice theory, this book does it for you in about two pages. Now, as a polemic, um, it never understates, that's for sure. I often find, found myself, as I read it, wishing that it would grapple just a bit more with some of the complexities of its position. For example, uh, according to Joel, it is okay for the government to license physicians but not to license cosmetologists. Well, okay, what's the difference and how does one draw either a philosophical or a political line between the two? But, but then it's a polemic, it's a short book, it's not trying to iron out all the details. And as a primer, I think it keeps good company with David Bose's Libertarianism, a primer, which is, I think, a source book. Uh, longer and more philosophical, if you want a good, a good read and a plane ride, a good way to get your hands around these fundamental libertarian ideas, um, this is a very good way to do it. You'll come off the plane with a good sense of what it's all about, um, the economics of regulation of public choice and, and so forth. Uh, 
So congratulations to, to Joel Miller for providing that. The big question that the book raises to somebody like me, I'm a working journalist in Washington, and uh, I've been looking at these issues now since 1981, Reagan summer when I was an intern at National Journal here in Washington. And the big question is, now what? What does this all mean? One of the nice things about this book is the last chapter. Uh, apart from the fact that it's short and gets out economically, the book is also admirably free of these kind of pat 10-step solutions, which seem to be often the requisite of books. Um, now, this may be a strength of the book. You know, People will say, so what is the answer? What's, what solution are you proposing, Mr. Miller? Uh, it may be a strength that this book doesn't propose any solution because it may reflect a reality that there are no solutions, in which case the answer is don't kill ourselves. Uh, by trying to find one that doesn't exist. There's a quotation on page 195, I noticed, in which um, Joel Miller says, the only way to effectively secure the common good is for government to remain small. Note the verb remain. The obvious question that this raises is, okay, the solution is for it to remain small, but what do you do when it's not small anymore? So, of course, the question is, now what? Well, in my, I guess, 26 years now of experience in Washington, uh, it has been an exceptional period. These have been 25 or 26 years which have been demarked by an intense and repeated effort by conservative, often libertarian, reformers to do something about the size of what they regarded as the beast in Washington. And it's worth a few minutes to look back on that and see what's happened, because I think it turns out to be a very revealing story and one that we're in the midst of, in fact, yesterday as the House passes its budget. I would argue that the anti-government critique has really been the only coherent and consistent reform program that's been out there for about the last 40 years, going back to the Goldwater period. What's unique about the last 25 years is an attempt by a political party, the Republicans, to operationalize that. And this they did in three distinct waves under three generals. The first leader is David Stockman, who is Ronald Reagan's first budget director. The second is Newt Gingrich, Speaker of the House, 1995 to 98. The third, co-generals Tom DeLay, the House Majority Leader, and Karl Rove, the President's strategist, when Bush comes to office. Stockman, in some ways, is the most interesting figure. In 1975, he writes an article in the public interest called The Social Pork Barrel, which is really the opening manifesto of this large 25-year conservative movement, in which he pronounces that Washington has degenerated to a state in which all Congress really is is a big client server that's uh, siphoning money out uh, to its clients on the principle not of those who are needy get or serving some public purpose, but, and I quote, the greatest goodies to the greatest number. Stockman says that Republicans, conservatives, have been bought off by the establishment, go along with it, and he concludes by saying, sooner or later, conservatives are going to have to break with the system or acquiesce in fiscal policies and in a growth in the share of national income devoted to quotation marks, social welfare that are entirely incompatible with their basic beliefs. Six years later, David Stockman is budget director, and he and Ronald Reagan actually take a run at this problem, and indeed they accomplish quite a bit. They restrain the growth of government spending. They have the talk 
top tax rate. They whip inflation. And they restore confidence in markets and the prestige of free market system. However, what they do not do, and really after a while what they don't really attempt to do after the initial burst of energy, is try to unwind the existing programs and really roll back the federal government. Now, notice what the program is for David Stockman. Um, it's kind of a three-step program. First, you reduce the size of government. Second, you grow the economy as a result of that. And third, you get a majority because the voters say, this is great, this is much better than the alternative. That doesn't work. In fact, the voters, 1992, throw out the Republicans. They say, thank you for that economic growth. That was all very nice. Thank you and goodbye. They elect Bill Clinton. But the Republicans and conservatives aren't done yet. 1994, Newt Gingrich comes along. And he, in many ways, is a figure much like David Stockman, even more audacious in some respects. And his program is similar. That is, shrink government, grow the economy, and be rewarded as the end game, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, with a majority. Um, he tries very hard. In some ways, he tries harder and more consistently than Stockman and Ronald Reagan ever did. The result is that Clinton trounces them in the show-off over closing government. The Republicans are spanked in 1998, nearly lose their House majority. Now comes a change of thinking. 1998, Gingrich is off the scene. Tom DeLay and Karl Rove come along. Rove comes along in 2001, of course. They think what we need to do here is flip the sequence. The problem is every time we make these reforms, these are supply-side reforms. They take a while to work. There's a short-term backlash against spending cuts. It's like every time the, the veterinarian tries to give the horse the pill he needs, the horse kicks the veterinarian in the head. So what are we going to do? First, we entrench Republicans as the governing party. We make them basically invulnerable in Washington. We do that by setting up an elaborate political machine. Once we're entrenched as the majority and we have some insulation against backlash, we will then be in a position to put through the reforms we have long dreamed about without being kicked in the head. Uh, well, this is not an irrational strategy. There are those who see Tom DeLay, for example, as an unprincipled opportunist, a cynical machine builder who really didn't care. I don't know Tom DeLay. I've met Karl Rove a few times, and I can tell you he cares immensely. He is, in many ways, right back to the Goldwater years, a guy who's on board with the principles of, uh, of this movement and has been for many years. But what they go about doing to build their machine is they make a lot of compromises. They begin passing enormous numbers of earmarks in the budget. Discretionary spending goes through the roof under these guys as they try to buy political support, largely successfully. They go out on the K Street project and they decide to turn the special interest money machine to Republican advantage and begin pulling in money as fast as they can. They try to disarm the Democrats who've had these entitlement weapons to use against them by instead of trying to cut entitlements, as Gingrich and Stockman did, increase them. So big farm bill, big education entitlement bill, and of course the massive prescription drug entitlement program. All of these intended to take issues off the table that the Democrats have been using against them. And finally, for the uh, social conservatives, they have stem cell research and same-sex marriage amendment and so forth. Well, phase one succeeds. These guys are brilliant guys, and they bring it off. In 2004, they, are, they deepen their majorities, and they are now well entrenched. And to their credit, in 2005, they launch stage two. They go right for the belly of the beast to what they take to be the linchpin program of the Democratic FDR 
New Deal establishment, and that is Social Security. Well, I don't have to tell you what happens when they go up against that. Um, the entire reform effort not only doesn't fly, it explodes catastrophically on the launch pad. They also, in 2005, decide they're going to try to use this machine they built to cut entitlement spending a bit. This is something they haven't tried in eight years of machine building. Well, they get virtually nowhere. The budget that the House passed yesterday cuts entitlement spending by $40 billion over five years. That is one-half of 1% 1 of all spending over that period. Of course, it is not a cut. It is a very tiny decrement in the rate of growth. That's it, one-half of 1%, 1 and it took an enormous amount of effort to do it. Well, it turned out that in building this machine and entrenching themselves, the Republicans unified the Democrats in opposition, and they alarmed a lot of independents who didn't like what they were seeing in one-party government. So the revolution fails again. Two major tactics, two major failures. So where are we now? Well, I'd like to point out one additional period in here which often tends to get overlooked, and that is the period framed by Bush 41, father of the current president, and Bill Clinton. This is a period in which you have several bipartisan budget deals that combine spending cuts with tax increases, and which, in fact, cut spending by as much as 10 times in real dollars the amount that the Republicans acting on their own were able to cut it this year. There was some big cuts in those budget packages. Second, it's an environment with pay-as-you-go rules on Capitol Hill where entitlement increases have to be offset by other cuts. The Clinton administration wanted to expand entitlements. They wanted to do a big prescription drug program. The reason they didn't is because the rules said they had to pay for it and they couldn't cut anything else. We went there for about eight years with no major entitlement expansions of any kind. Finally, there were caps on discretionary spending, and that meant that discretionary spending was virtually flat in constant dollars. I'm talking here about domestic. That's even setting aside the defense cuts that happened in that period. Dif domestic discretionary spending went up very little. Now, this is an entirely different approach. And this is an approach, actually, that the Republican revolutionaries and conservatives always hated because they thought it was buying into big government. They wanted radical reforms. But it turns out the small potatoes are the big potatoes, that we got substantial incremental restraint in the growth of government over this period, and we got budget surpluses. This is not the Madisonian world that Joel Miller's book describes as the ideal, the world of small government, uh, but it ain't bad. And I think it's time for, for a lot of people who are on the, uh, uh, the anti-government side of this debate to begin thinking much harder about these incrementalist strategies and indeed about using tax increases as a tool to get spending cuts, something that Ed Niskanen, uh, sorry, Bill Niskanen has been saying for years and is absolutely right about it, it turns out, is that cutting taxes does not starve the beast. What cutting taxes does in times of deficit spending is make government look cheaper to the voters because they're only paying for 80 cents on the dollar of what they're getting. And everybody knows when you put something on sale, shoppers want more of it. When you subsidize big government, you get more of it, and that's exactly what's happened. It turns out it is much better to have a deficit rule requirement in which you have some tax increases that require people to pay for what they're getting. Then they demand less. It's a, I, I think a lot more thought has to be given in the conservative movement to the dogma that any tax cuts are good. I think what they're doing is perversely growing the government that they plan to shrink. Finally, those in this room, those in this building at the Cato Institute, and those who are watching on C-SPAN and think about these questions, um, a broader word about the Libertarian Project, which to some extent is embodied in this book, which is a very 
good summary of the case against big government. We've been hearing the case against big government now for 25 or 30 or 40 years. Uh, we've been hearing it since Goldwater's conscience of a conservative in 1962, I think it was, made many of the same arguments. Perhaps we've had enough theorizing on the virtues of smaller government, and perhaps it's time for some of the smartest heads in the libertarian and small government movements to begin building a new theory of how you get from here to there. Without a theory of some sort of how you get from here to there, the libertarian project will remain as I think, alas, it now is exhausted. Joel and Jonathan can go ahead and answer some questions now if you've got any. Uh, what I'd like to do just uh, as a quick uh, point of reference, uh, we're going to have microphones coming around and since C-SPAN is taping, I want to make sure they can record your question as well. Please, once I call on you, uh, identify yourself, your affiliation, and then ask your question. Uh, and please keep them questions if we can. Right in the back, last row there. Chris Grebe, um One of the ideas that's going around that's been proposed as reform on uh, on, uh, is the idea of, the, of giving the president the empowerment power. I think I pronounced that right. Um, what do you think of that idea, that it would uh, end some of the earmarks, which seemed to be the big complaint, and also uh, repealing the federal campaign financing rule? And also, I think it should be mentioned, this is Ayn Rand's birthday. She began some of this back in 19. That, that's certainly true. Do you want to respond to that, Joel? Or ask Jonathan if he likes. I'll Go jump ahead. in real fast. <clears throat> I don't know that earmark reform makes very much difference in the end. Um, you always come up with a different name for it and uh, pass them through the budget in a different way. Um, if the president had the ability to challenge those item by item in the uh, in the budget, he might do that. I don't know that he would, so I don't have a whole lot of hope for that. Jonathan? Um, yeah, basically, I'd, I'd echo that. A president asked in the State of the Union for the line-item veto. President Reagan used to ask for that. It's not at all clear whether that increases or reduces federal spending because it may simply encourage Congress to stuff a lot more stuff in there because now it can blame the president for whatever gets through that's unpopular. And, of course, the president can use the item veto power as a way to finagle in his own stuff and use that as leverage and log rolling. Um, so I'm not too optimistic that that sort of thing would work. Just a quick thing I'd like to add before we go to the next question uh, in terms of pork barrel reform. One thing that bothers me is that this might be a way of Republicans to kind of get off easy. They essentially say we're going we're to go ahead and put an embargo or a, a, kind of a, a, a moratorium on earmarks and pork projects and such, and then declare victory against big government and say, look, we've done it, we've solved the problem. And the truth is uh, pork projects are really a very small share of the overall budget. You've got 97 percent of the rest of the budget that's also a problem. And so I think declaring uh, early victory on things like earmarks, even if they're able to, uh, might actually be counterproductive in some ways. Yeah, you know, earmarks can be useful for cutting spending depending what you use them for. They can be the lubricant that you need in a spending reduction package like the ones we had in 1990 and 93 in order to get critical swing members to buy off on a bitter medicine that they otherwise wouldn't take. Um, the problem has been that this Republican machine establishment has not been using them that way. Sure. Next question. Uh, so we had uh, three in the back. Let's go ahead and go right to left. Uh, John, in the back there. Yes. Do I, do I come to the center? Or? 
Oh, go right ahead. Just do the microphone. John Burlaw. I'm a fellow in economic policy at uh, uh, the, uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and I've written on some of these issues. Um, one of the great strengths of Joel's book is when he talks about that size matters, and it does, it's not just the spending, and it's good that there's a renewed emphasis on that, but the meddling, the stopping of productive activities by entrepreneurs and families and others. And I think one of the things about, um, sort of an answer to Jonathan, one of the things about um, tax cuts and, uh, and spending is that if um, with with tax cuts and and the surplus, one of the one of the virtues of a deficit is, and Milton Friedman has uh, said something similar to this: that if the government spends money on interest, it's that's still better than spending uh, than spending money on uh, an agency that can uh, that can stop uh, productive activity in the private sector. And with things like the meddling, like the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of uh, of 2002, which was passed, you know, by sort of drafted by the Democratic Senate and then signed on by Republicans in the House and President Bush in a panic after the Enron and WorldCom scandals, that's having a lot of costing billions of, of dollars, also adding man hours. And when I go back, I'm from the, the Midwest, when I go back there, I will talk to people who work in, you know, tractor companies who are... The the uh, that are divisions of public companies, and they will talk about you know the, uh, the the extra hours it's added. And some of them can identify it by name. Others can say, well, we have to do all this stuff with we will have to do all of this stuff with uh, with a, with accounting now. And so they know it. They know about the extra hours that they have to do. That's that's, that's extra work that they can't do to other work and you know st- and staying late things. It's an issue that that is hitting home with them. It's not just a Washington issue. And Joel covers it right. in his book. And I'm just wondering, Joel and, and Jonathan uh, can answer this too. Um, is there any recent politician that has connected the size of government, not just with spending but with meddling, uh, to the uh, to the average voter? Or what are the best examples of recent politicians doing this? Okay, I guess I'll let you go first, Joel. The short answer to that is probably Ron Paul, Texas, maybe Tom Coburn uh, in the Senate uh, from Oklahoma. I don't think very many politicians. Uh, get much in the way of brownie points by making that argument. They make better arguments for their own constituents by saying that they'll uh, supply the needs or the wants of that constituency. And only to a minor extent do they make that sort of argument that the government is meddling. And usually when they do it, it's in an area where they don't have, you know, much to lose if they say it. So I have a feeling it'd be disingenuous most of the time you hear it anyway. All right. Uh, another question? I think we had one in the back. Let's go ahead and go there, and we'll come up front. Go ahead. Robert Stacy McCain with the Washington Times. So the, the founders, uh, Madison et al., um, s- spoke of self-interest, you know, the, the rational pursuit of self-interest in government. People on Social Security... When they vote for politicians they think will protect, expand benefits to themselves, th- those, th- they're pursuing their self-interest. Uh, can we ever expect people to vote against you know, their narrow self-interest in the sense of uh, Social Security reform and other entitled bene- entitlement benefits like that? Okay. This is a big question. You go first. The only way to make that happen is for people to have a realignment of what they think their interests are. Uh, I think that's going on right now in terms of Social Security. It's, you know, it used to be that Social Security was the third rail of politics, it was said, and you talk about it, 
You touch it, you die. Well, that's not the case anymore. It's gradually changing. It's gradually changing because people's expectations of what they can do for themselves is changing. And I think lots of people believe that they can pursue happiness more effectively if they have that hunk out of their paycheck to invest themselves. Certainly, when you look at polling data on this, more people would rather have that choice than actually think that Social Security is in crisis. So that reflects, I think, a cultural shift towards more preference for choice, more preference for the ability to make those decisions for oneself. And as that changes, then the debate changes. People's expectations change. They will always vote in their best interest. There's no way around that. You just have to change what people think their interests are. Uh, thanks. What an important question. The evidence since the 70s suggests, at least to me, that, that the system is capable of approximately one really major programmatic fundamental reform per decade. In the 70s, it would be transportation deregulation. In the 80s, it would be tax reform. In the 90s, it would be welfare reform, uh, which was a very big one indeed. And in this decade, it may yet be either Social Security or Medicare reform. Um, in the 90s, Congress also tried a fundamental reform to farm programs, and if the farm economy hadn't gone south, uh, that probably would have worked as well. So you can do about one of these in a decade. It takes enormous political energy, but tax reform, for example, took all kinds of goodies away from all kinds of immense and powerful interest groups. Um, remember, ideas do matter. It is, it is not as if everything is altogether futile, but also remember that the big marquee reforms are only the most visible stuff out there, and at least as important as all the small potato stuff that one can do by way of holding the line and making nibbling small incremental reforms to programs year by year. Um, that work is immensely important, and what we learned in the 90s is that the small potatoes really add up. That, I think, is what a lot of people in the conservative and libertarian movements have lost sight of, because they go out there to the public railing against big government and creating expectations that somehow we're going to shrink government to a fraction of its current size if you elect the right guys, and that's the only way to fix the problem. That raises voters' expectation levels such that these incremental reforms are viewed as failure rather than success. I think, perversely, if we set the bar a little bit lower in terms of the rhetoric, we might actually get better results um, by giving politicians some rewards for some of the tough decisions that they made throughout the 90s that involved holding the line, but that really do add up. We've got time for a couple more questions. Right here. Uh, the Conservative Caucus. I agree with Jonathan that we need to uh, offer practical ways of achieving the implementation of our principles. Here's one. Uh, if a President of the United States were to offer the American people a grand bargain where in return for significant cuts in discretionary spending, they would no longer have to pay an income tax. Uh, I believe that uh, if he operated by veto, needing only one-third plus one of either House in Congress to achieve his objectives, he could go a long way. Libertarians, in my view, ought to reconsider their approach to tariff policy. I think our goal should be to eliminate the income tax, uh, repeal the 16th Amendment, abolish the IRS, and return to the revenue tariff as a principal source of income. If you cut the federal government down to constitutional size, which in today's terms would be about uh, $600 billion a year, you could cover it 
with a revenue tariff combined with a citizenship tax or a poll tax, if you will. And uh, the question is, would there be a president uh, willing to uh, take on all of the special interests? The reason we have ethical crises is because of the Internal Revenue Code. Without an Internal Revenue Code, most lobbyists and lawyers would be out of business. We need to get rid of the IRS and the Internal Revenue Code. The line item veto is very dangerous because it uh, increases the power of the executive against the power of the legislative. Uh, the president has much power. He still can use impoundment despite the 1974 law which was enacted because of my effort to close down the Great Society when I was director of the U.S. Office of Economic Opportunity. He also has recession authority, et cetera. Sure. I want to go ahead and give the uh, authors a chance to comment. Go right ahead. Uh, not much direct comment other than that. Um, that's going to be an awful lot of political uh, work to get something like the IRS uh, taken away, gone, done. I love the idea of getting rid of the IRS, but uh, I'm not very hopeful about seeing anything like that anytime soon. I'm generally not very hopeful about much of this. Um, you know, it'd be great if government were smaller, but things build slowly over time, and as things get entrenched slowly over time, uh, they have all sorts of defense mechanisms against ever getting smaller. Everything that helps keep something big helps uh, prevent it from ever getting small. And so, um, you know, I don't know. It's it would be a big bold move, and if it can happen, it'd be interesting to watch. Jonathan, any comments? Can we have time for just one more question? Uh, let's go ahead, Nick, in the front here. Hi, I'm uh, Nick Gillespie with Reason Magazine. I want to um, speak towards or ask a question about Jonathan's sense of exhaustion and uh, kind of the libertarian program, as well as Joel's interest in the pursuit of happiness. While there's no question by virtually every level or every indicator, every metric that you want to use, government is much bigger now than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago, et cetera. By the same token, there's been a social revolution in America, which is incredibly libertarian, so that if you are gay, if you're black, if you are alternative across an endless number of kind of social and cultural indicators, you're much freer to pursue happiness on your own terms, I think, to live your life the way you want to. And what I would uh, be interested in hearing you guys talk about or address what is the connection with that social revolution, assuming you agree it, it, it is taking place and, and proceeds apace, and the growth of big government? Are these things just totally separate from one another? Are they interacting in some kind of way? Or, and is one dragging the other one in, in one particular direction? Hmm. You want to go first? The, uh, <clears throat> I don't know that I agree with all of the assumptions in that, but uh, I would certainly say that on the one hand, while government is growing, the variety revolution or whatever you want to call it going on in the economy and in society in general is definitely enabling people to have more paths down which to pursue happiness. Certainly uh, the way markets help drive prices down enable you, and essentially enables your paycheck to become larger just by virtue of not having to spend as much of it on incrementally on certain things. And the more markets empower people to buy more, to do more, to invest more, to save more, that certainly helps. Markets definitely push back against big government. Because when you look back at Oppenheimer's uh, dichotomy between the political means and the economic means, they are in tension. And the more economic freedom you have, usually the less political repression or political uh, hassles you're going to end up with. So in principle or in, you know, basically I think I agree with you on that. Um, that's certainly what we're seeing right now to some extent. 
the comments? That's a, a wonderful point that I'm thinking very hard about. Without coming on any crisp response, it, it opens actually a whole new path of inquiry, the relationship between increasing social freedom and, um, and growth of government. It is worth pointing out that for all the all we, we've heard today, that the size of government as a share of GDP has not expanded very much in the last 20 or 25 years. So you could argue that as, as a share of the social, the economic scene generally, what we're seeing is, is by, by no means an explosion of, of government growth. Um, but that said, I, I, I need to think much harder about the point you make because it's, I think, tremendously fertile. And we'll have the time to talk about that over lunch. And we'll just go ahead and uh, thank uh, Joel and Jonathan as well. I also want to remind everyone, please buy a copy, $18 right out front of Size Matters. Joel has been gracious enough to sign whatever copies you buy today. And I uh, want to thank you all for coming and thank the audience on C-SPAN as well.